Hey, welcome to Friday. Welcome to the Week in Review. Bill Radke here. I'm your host. And for the next hour, being Friday, we get to figure out what happened this week and what it all means with a panel of journalists. So with me today, please welcome Crosscut and KCTS9 producer Beatrice Costa-Lima. Beatrice, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. South Seattle Emerald reporter and the co-host of Clapback Culture on Converge Media. Mike Davis, welcome back. Good to have you. Thanks for having me again. And The Strangers associate editor, Rich Smith. Rich, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Good to see you. Good to have you here. I, I can see you. I can literally see you. Are my guests, are any of my guests wearing a top hat and monocle or um, uh, yarn hair and a big red nose? How would you know unless you're watching with us? <laughs> <laughs> on YouTube or Facebook. I have to find a new way to say that every week. So uh, sorry about that. I appreciate uh, the effort. Thank you. Thank you. That's all I'm looking for. Uh, my point is, if you want to watch the show, you can go to YouTube or Facebook and just search for KUOW Public Radio. Uh, speaking of stuff you can see, who can tell me why there are yellow signs around Seattle with the single word believe? Anybody know what's going on? I know what's going on, Bill, but I, I just don't know if I believe yet. <laughs> you I'm still afraid. don't believe? You've been instructed to believe. Listen, listen, I, there's been so much heartbreak through my life with these Mariners. I mean, I remember when they had like one of the best seasons ever and the postseason was a straight disaster. So I'm just I'm so afraid to get on board and have my heart broken yet again. Okay, Mike Davis's sign says "believe" with a red line drawn through it. <laughs> Any other anybody else uh, Mariner fans, or at least following uh, what's going on? I understand that the baseball team has somewhat of some kind of small chance to make it into the postseason, and I wish them luck. Well, so, well <laughs> smoking like a politician, you must you, you've been covering a lot of politics lately. I, yeah, well, what I can. Yes. I don't see Beatrice on my screen anymore, but maybe Beatrice, are you with us? Okay, we're gonna there reconnecting. I see Beatrice again. Beatrice, uh, are did you go away because um, you don't want to jinx the Mariners or what? what what's that? I, I swear that was not me leaving out of spite for the Mariners. <laughs> it was purely technical issues, but I'm back. Very good. Well, I'm glad to have you back. Glad to have all of you here. Um, who believes? Who believes that they're going to be mayor more? That's really that's really what it's going to come down to. Lorena Gonzalez or Bruce Harrell, they had a debate this week, and Bruce Harrell said that in some locations he would offer more help to people in homeless encampments, and then uh, if that doesn't work, he would clear those camps away. People are homeless who are begging for services and shelter, and residents who are there who are begging for a place for their kids to be safe Whereas Lorena Gonzalez said she opposes all involuntary sweeps of homeless encampments. Yeah, I think the scenario in which an encampment should end is when the government, the city, does its job and provides the shelter and the housing that's necessary to actually transition poor people out of poverty. So, uh, Rich, I'll start with you. If Gonzalez were mayor, would Seattle get so many housing units that we wouldn't have to kick people out of their tents? They would willingly go into a shelter, a room, an apartment? Oh, that, that's one of the hopes uh, in a multi-pronged approach, as far as I understand it from her, to deal with the, the, the city's housing shortage, which is 
uh, pretty massive. And then also um, to deal with the immediate concern of getting people who are sleeping in, uh, in the parks and in the streets uh, into housing. Um, yeah. Now, she she Mike, said that she Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Mike, I know you're following this as well. Um, you know, that, that if, if so Lorena Gonzalez is, doesn't want to uh, force people out of encampments, uh, does that mean she would be able to get the money and the will to create so much uh, acceptable shelter that that's possible? I don't really see how that would be a possibility. Um, even in the clip that you just played, she said that she wants to like lean on city staff and take that approach. Well, she is city staff right now. What has the approach been from this current mayor and current city council? It seems like it's gotten a lot worse. A lot of that, um, of course, has been heightened by the pandemic. But this idea that she's just going to bombard people with so many resources that they're going to have to walk away from their tents. I just don't see how that could ever happen in a timely manner. So, I mean, how long will our city be overrun with encampments? Bombard sound maybe is a little strong uh, <laughs> uh, of, of, of a way to put, put what uh, uh, I heard Gonzalez say she wanted to do. I, I think the, the both um, candidates approach to uh, encampments was slightly different. It sounded like uh, Gonzalez wanted to uh, engage outreach workers and uh, city staff to rapidly assess the needs of people in uh, who are sleeping outside, figure out who's ready to come in, uh, who's not quite ready, who needs uh, a longer term service plan, and then organize, you know, arrange city resources um, uh, in such a way so as to get the people inside. I've heard a lot of different stuff out of uh, Harold. Uh, he's often talked about a sort of data approach we've got to figure out where everybody is he's he's in other forms has talked about heat mapping the homeless uh, uh tents so that we know where people uh are sleeping and maybe that will give us some kind of uh insight uh and then you know sweeping them if uh if they don't uh accept the shelter of course the problem with all of this is that the city doesn't have enough shelter beds available uh, for, for people who want to come inside. I think one of the quotes I heard from uh, one of the Seattle Times reporters last night or the night before was that we only have on average about eight open beds a day. So, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a tough uh, situation. It is yeah. tough. Can I, can I ask you two questions, Rich? Sure. Um, the first question would be if that is the plan of Gonzalez, I mean, What's stopping city council and the mayor from coming together and making those things happen now? Um, why does she have to be mayor to start pushing that forward? That's something that she could already be pushing. And on the flip side with Harold, I mean, if you do forcibly remove someone from that encampment, where are they supposed to go? I mean, I don't really like the idea of encampments going from one place to another place to another place. So I'm not necessarily saying that he's correct. I'm just saying that his idea is something that is different than what we're seeing right now, which is encampments come up and they just exist. Yeah, I mean, I did the, the quick answer to, to both questions. Uh, number one is I, I think that you know, Gonzalez has been one of the council members over the course of the last few years during the Dirkus administration who has pushed 
at, at reforming the way that we handle encampment sweeps. First, we had the navigation uh, team, you know, cops uh, and service workers uh, sweeping that got changed um, or, or, you know, uh, that evolved into the to the hope team. So there has been a kind of a move into the direction that Lorena is talking about. And I think she wants to keep on that trajectory, but it's been slow going. Um, and uh, as far as Bruce is, because it's it's hard to find the, the, the value there. I, the, the one tweet um, uh, that I noticed, um, uh, Harold said this in a homeless form on that day. This is a tweet from Erica C. Barnett. We shouldn't have to look at the human suffering of other people. We don't have to see it. We should lead with love and we're going to ensure that people can enjoy their parks and have the quality of life they deserve. That's what I mean by a kind of uh, concern with cosmetics seems to be driving uh, the problem. And I don't know how you, you know, if you, how you fix that concern by sweeping, as you said, it just moves the, the problem around. Beatrice, I know you're, you're less on the city politics beat than uh, Rich or Mike. So do you have uh, either information, insight or just a question about um, about this uh, mayoral campaign? And we'll talk about a couple other campaigns, too. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, you both have really interesting questions and points, but I think definitely something to bring up because, um, you know, talking about how you would get people, you know, off the streets and sweeps is obviously extremely important and is usually one of the, the biggest things to to first lead the conversation with. But uh, I, I'm definitely interested in um, talking a little bit more about the, uh, the single family zoning issue, because that definitely... Mm seems to be where they differ um the two candidates with gonzalez you know being a big advocate for for limiting that um i'm curious what both of you think about that yeah well i mean to to, to quote we shouldn't have to look at the human suffering of people we don't have to see it so s some people feel that way when they walk by windermere and see all of those uh single family homes and no apartments in there to get some units you know it's like we got a housing crisis we need we got some land you know we've got some people who are pretty well off we might as well uh, and a lot of the districts have taken a lot of this density it's displaced a lot of people especially people of color so there's a lot of opportunity in seattle uh, especially some of uh, the wider enclaves uh, to take some of that density and to create more housing uh, of course, you know, uh, others would argue that, um, uh, well, yeah, which would help get um, get people off the streets uh, long term. Uh, others would argue that the market, um, uh, which is this sort of approach, is never going to build the kind, the amount of housing that you're going to need to house some of these folks, especially between zero and 30 uh, AMI. So we're also going to need, um, you know, large influx uh, in of money, either in the federal money, state money, city money, um, to spend on affordable housing for those people too. So um, it needs it needs to be a combo approach. Well, I want to touch really fast on that tweet that came from Erica Barnett. Um, I find her to be extremely insightful. I'm a fan, definitely. But, you know, I had a chance to sit down with Bruce a couple of times while he was campaigning. And I kind of differ with her on her stance on the inhumane thing. What I hear Bruce saying is that people living in encampments is inhumane in itself, not the idea that it's just an eyesore that we shouldn't have to look at. I think it's more so these are conditions that we don't want to see our fellow humans living in. And we can parse words and go back and forth, but that's just what I heard. When it comes to the single family zoning issues, 
that actually scares me. I mean, to hear Gonzalez talk about that because, I mean, just as a citizen, you know, I don't see a scenario in which we're going to see multifamily homes and apartments that have low income rooms available that are going to pop up in Magnolia. I don't think that's ever going to pop up in Windermere. It's never going to pop up in Laurelhurst. So when we're talking about doing this, where's it actually going to be? My guess would probably be South Seattle. We're going to be looking at Rainier Valley. We're going to be looking at Rainier Beach. We are not going to be looking at those exclusive neighborhoods. Uh, my daughter goes to a daycare that's near UW. I actually drove through Laurelhurst recently. You know what I didn't see around there? Tents, encampments, homeless. So in Seattle, it, it really depends on where you live and where your community is, what type of things kind of just get to slide. So if we're going to talk about this zoning issue, it has to be citywide. It can't just be throwing things in South Seattle. Hey, we talked uh, about uh, the mayoral campaign. We could talk about uh, District 9, probably will in coming weeks um, here as we approach the election deadline and ballots come out in a couple of weeks. I do want to, for today, I want to touch on the city attorney um, campaign because we're going to replace the Seattle city attorney one way or the other. Um, it's between uh, Nicole Thomas Kennedy and Ann Davison. And I'm, I'm curious what uh, any of you are seeing in that campaign. The, the choices are so different. Um, Mike, do you see a clear preference among the Seattle electorate? Do we, do we know yet? Where do you see this going? I mean, this is a tough one. They are so opposite on like everything that it just really makes it interesting to see this play out. Uh, myself, I got to say, I mean, NTK, there's so much fresh ideas that she's bringing, so many things that we haven't seen or tried before. I mean, I definitely be willing to get down with that. But I mean, our city is definitely going to step up in that race. I mean, you could look at Harold and Gonzalez, and there's so much overlap in that Venn diagram. There's so many things that eh, they're kind of similar. But with this city attorney's race, they are opposites. And the city is really going to speak on what direction we're going to go in, depending on who wins that race. I think you're talking about Nicole Thomas Kennedy uh, not oh, yeah, wanting sorry. to prosecute. Yeah, just so for listeners who aren't following us as much as we are, um, uh, saying that uh, she wants to would prosecute far fewer uh, misdemeanors. Um, any, anyone else have something to add on this uh, campaign? So such a choice for the people of Seattle. Well, I'll just add, uh, and if anyone wants to jump in, please feel free. You know, she was a public defender and she kind of speaks about how um, I think she said like 90% of the cases that she's seen with theft, for example, was like people just stealing food. So her idea is let's not prosecute people because they're hungry or because they're homeless and they're committing crimes for survival. Let's focus those efforts on folks that are actually criminals just doing criminal acts. And that's a really big distinction. And Davidson comes back on that with like, well, you know, assault can be considered a low level crime or even like sexual misconduct assault. And whenever you throw that sexual term in there, it gets people triggered. And a lot of what Ann Davidson does is get people triggered. But I really think that I mean, I could call her NTK. I'm sorry. I just it just sounds really, really cool. She gets uh -huh. people excited. She got me excited, as you can see. So, you know, it's really going to be interesting to watch that play out. Yeah, yeah. I Oh, okay. go ahead. I insist. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, you know, as someone who's is, is watching the race, even though this is not, you know, my my beat, I think it's really exciting 
regardless of, of who wins, the fact that, you know, since their stances are so far apart, the dialogue that's coming from a lot of these debates I, is fascinating and is actually, I think, giving people an opportunity to really not just like talk about what candidate they want, but talk about like the core of how do we handle a lot of these issues, whether it's homelessness or criminal justice and like, what do we as a city want to take a stance on like, what is our like philosophy on how we, on how we tackle this. So, I mean, I think just the opportunity for the dialogue has been really fascinating to watch. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. And, and, and had a, um, or, you know, Davidson had a, a kind of an uphill uh, a battle with regard to presenting herself to a, a pretty blue uh, Seattle. You know, she uh, became a Republican during the Trump administration. She ran for Lieutenant uh, governor, uh, basically on a platform of go- trying to abolish the the position, <laughs> uh, and you know she's had controversial, uh, she's held controversial um, uh, opinions about uh, homelessness. Some of the things that we were talking about that she wanted to warehouse uh, homeless people, basically uh, up north in giant FEMA tents, that sort of thing. Uh, and I thought at the recent um, debates that her Democratic political consultants, which she uh, hired last month, have done a very strong job uh, presenting her, you know, working with her to present more of a sort of a liberal uh, face. But yeah, just to underscore some of the, the differences between the two, I mean, functionally, it comes down to whether or not you want to um, vote uh, for somebody who thinks uh, that we need to jail um, a, a lot of low level people who commit uh, low level crimes, um, a lot of which, um, as uh, Mike said, are crimes of poverty, um, uh, or somebody who says, you know, we've been doing that for uh, hundreds of years. And that, that doesn't appear to be uh, changing um, uh, the the uh, the ball game here and well, so but some you know, people in seattle are complaining thing. about a lack of prosecutions already right uh, that, we have, that, that we haven't been doing that enough for some some seattleites yes i i yeah i, I guess there you know there's complaints about uh, you know the, the, the complaint i hear most often is this kind of um uh, what is it frequent offender complaint where you know mm-hmm. we keep jailing these people they keep stealing cake pops from starbucks they won't stop stealing mountain dews from the subways they go in and out of jail you know that sort of thing and you know and and tk to you to borrow a phrase, uh, you know, we'll point out that that, you know, that's the very thing she's going to try to stop uh, as a as a as city attorney. She argues that that process, putting people in jail, like making them try to hit bail, you know, uh, disrupting their lives, you know, constantly so that they sometimes lose their housing, sometimes lose their stuff, have to start all over again. Uh, is actually perpetuating some of the crimes um, that the people are are committing, and so she okay. wants to take a different approach. Sorry, we're we're, we're going to wrap up elections. I just since we're talking about controversial comments, um, what about the tweets that um, Nicole Thomas Kennedy has has written in the past, uh, calling police a co- quote a collection of meathead leeches who need to go home to their mommies and unlatch from the collective taxpayer teat. Um, when a man rammed a flaming pole into a police car and nearly killed an officer, Thomas Kennedy tweeted out, cops are so dumb, put up your window, pig. Cops are serial killers. Um, what, what do you make, uh, how much should she be held to those tweets and how big an effect do you think they're going to have? Since you were holding Bruce Harrell to a tweet a moment ago, what, 
What, it, what it, 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 it takes a lot to make me cry. I, I, I think that uh, <laughs> I, I think that uh, uh, as I was saying earlier before we got on, every tweet is a, a policy failure. Every tweet is a mistake. I don't think anyone uh, should be tweeting. Uh, those tweets were obviously uh, inflammatory, but you know, I think you know, kind of going back to what Mike was saying, uh, you know. Thomas Kennedy was a public defender for, you know, four years. She sat across um, the table from prosecutors and saw them jail time and time again, people for stealing pants from Goodwill, Mountain Dews from Subways, you know, and, you know, the relationship between prosecutors and the police department is often, and I think in this case, very strong, very sympathetic. And so it, um, uh, while those tweets were very inflammatory, they may have been triggered just by that kind of tribalism that builds up whenever, you know, you see time and time and again, cops trying to put away people for the, for the, you know, low level of offenses and not, not really solving the problem in that way. You know, a lot of them were also written uh, during the, the massive cultural upheaval in June of 2020. I mean, there's also, you know, Okay. Other, I saw. Since I want to leave, we're going. We got a whole week to cover. Any other reaction to the Thomas Kennedy tweets? Love the tweets. Love them. It make it just. It makes her seem so much more real. I mean, some of those tweets came as the police were literally gassing Capitol Hill, and we were witnessing people calling in to city council meetings saying that their babies were choking on smoke. That makes her just as real as the rest of us. Also, yo, those tweets made it all the way to Fox News. I seen Tucker Carlson discussing those tweets with Jason Rance. Um, if you can make the right wing that pissed off, the people on the left are going to love that. But on the flip side, you know, Seattle also has a lot of rich people. They watch Fox News, too, which is the reason why we're going to be really, really split. And I think that even more than the mayoral race, this city attorney race, this is the race to watch to see the direction that our city's going to go in. Well, that's more of an argument for taking the tweet seriously and not and not saying, well, hey, haven't we all said things uh, that we didn't quite mean? So those are those are those are two interesting takes. We're going to move on. Beatrice, anything you want to add to uh, Thomas Kennedy tweets or election progress here? Yeah, no, I mean, I got a similar take on it. You know, the tweets are what they are. And it's kind of I feel like in every election ever. I mean, even in Jeopardy, we're like looking back at what you know, Mike Richards had said, and there were issues, like any, any sort of public figure, people are going to go through and see what they said in the past. And so I think we're kind of used to it now. Um, I agree. It's kind of, it's, it's nice to see. I, I'd rather not have, uh, you know, people always be super sanitized on, on social media. So it is nice to see like a human form, but, you know, I, I hope that also we can keep just look, looking at the issues and having thoughtful debate and, the tweets don't kind of become this mind of their own to be the only thing we focus on um, as far as like, you know, them being super inflammatory rather than focusing like, Oh, what's the core? Like why did these things get tweeted? There's real emotion behind it. And, and there's real like issues to be talked about. So hopefully it doesn't become something uh, more than, than what it is. Okay. Well, I know we take seriously comments that candidates say in interviews with election boards and in debates when they don't have a chance to stop and edit themselves uh, so uh, I don't know how ill consider. I guess I don't know how people well, tweet. I guess everybody I think, tweets a little differently. Yeah. I think yeah. it's worth considering a power analysis here. Like if uh, Davidson had a bunch of tweets that was like, Hull should, you know, eat COVID-laced uh, 
poo poo or whatever, you know, then yes, people would be, uh, you know, it would be inflammatory toward people who consider themselves compassionate toward the poor. But, you know, like police have the state authority to kill people (laughs) if they want to, you know, like there's a real difference between kind of going off on the cops during a moment of cultural upheaval and then going off on, uh, you know, people who have the lowest amount of power in society. Well, and I think that's worth on the other end of it, it is also kind of, you know, if you're in any sort of public facing position, I don't know, you know, she had thought about running at this point when she tweeted those things. Social media is like so hard where like you kind of have to know that things are going to get pulled apart at some point. And so there is a bit of, you have to be careful what you say on the internet in general. Well, you're Um, right. And that's why she should explain, but not apologize. I think everything mm. she said was really on brand. She wants to come in. She wants to be the abolitionist. Well, then be that. Lean into it. Own it. Explain where your mindset was, but don't apologize. Yeah. It's Mike. (laughs) Mike Davis with uh, Clapback Culture on Converge Media and with South Seattle Emerald. We've got Rich Smith here from The Stranger, Beatrice Costa-Lima from Crosscut and KCTS9. We're gonna. We've got. We got a whole week to cover, so we're gonna get on a train and go 55 mile an hour underground to our next segment in just a moment. Stay tuned. Oh, Father, time checked, so that be no doubt. Bill Radke here with Beatrice Costalima and Rich Smith and Mike Davis. Are any of you taking the light rail tomorrow north of Husky Stadium? It's never been done. Yeah? I'm seeing nodding. Yes, I'm taking it today. I'm going on a little press, fancy press tour uh, <gasps> this, later this afternoon. You're getting I'm to write it early? I'm getting to write it early. I'm going to take photos. I'm going to tweet about it um, <laughs> oh. inadvisedly. Uh, and, uh, and then I'm going to write it tomorrow, too, you know, with everybody else. All right. Write a review. How are the seats? Yes. I, I'm looking forward to it. I love the new Siemens cars. They're so wide in the belly and I uh, love the blue lights. Uh, but I'm a little kid when I get on a train, so I'm, I love it. Do they have Wi-Fi? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, Good luck with that. Okay. well, by the way, I and my uh, KOW colleagues are going to be at the U District Station tomorrow on uh, Brooklyn Avenue. We're not getting there as early as Rich, but I'll be there from uh, 1 to 3 p.m. So see you there. Um, If you are taking the train to a Mariners game this weekend, be sure to wear your mask on board until you get to the game and eat a hot dog when you'll probably take your mask off next to 40,000 other people. I will not be doing that. Um, I do have some good pandemic news. Vaccinations have gone up and COVID cases and hospitalizations have gone down. And if I could find that tape, I would give you this. That is very welcome and hopeful news. However, I wanna be really clear that disease remains very high in Washington state. Thank you for that reminder, Lacey Fehrenbach of the State Health Department, talking about uh, vaccinations up and cases and hospitalizations down. Here's some uh, potentially good news. Hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but the drug maker Merck says that its experimental COVID pill reduced hospitalizations and deaths by half in people who were recently infected. If the FDA clears that, it would be the first pill that treats COVID-19, so not IV, not injection, uh, Beatrice, how, how big a deal is that? The, is the pandemic ending here? What's going on? 
I mean, God, I wish. <laughs> uh, so not quite ending, obviously. Um, and, you know, we're seeing it's it's definitely very like whiplash. We see like ups and downs of vaccinations going up and hospitalizations seem to going down in some areas, but then in rural rural parts of, of the country and in the state, we see sometimes the opposite trend. And so I think for me, what's what's been most, I guess, exciting about this is um, that is just another piece of the puzzle. It's another another tool that we can have potentially. Um, I think back, I'm not sure if it was in a speech or like in another press conference. I remember the president was talking when he was announcing the you know requirements for people to get vaccinated. Um, that for the most part, people who are going to get vaccinated have gotten vaccinated, who are eligible, like they've gotten vaccinated and we're kind of hitting a wall. Like what else do we do next? We're still not over the pandemic. And so any new, any new thing, whether it's an antiviral or a, you know, a booster or something is, is good news in the sense that, okay, we have something else we can do. Um, I think about, you know, I feel like every day on like Facebook or Twitter, I hear some story in the news about someone who was against the vaccine, gets sick, goes to the hospital, regrets it, and like makes this really impassioned, sad um, speech about it or something before they die. And it's really, and it's really sad. And I think, you know, maybe antivirals are something that could, could lessen symptoms for people who either, you know, didn't get the vaccine or maybe people who didn't build up the immune response, even if they did get the vaccine, just, so just having another tool in our, in our toolbox, you know, has to be progress. Yeah, and I, you know, the, uh, just lots of reports coming out in the Times the last couple of days from Joe O'Sullivan about people in rural uh, uh, counties overwhelmed the the hospitals and clinics there, and now they're getting uh, sent um, to more urban uh, districts uh, to, to deal with that. Maybe the um, maybe the the pills can help save some beds, you know, basically and keep the the, the hospital um, offer some relief uh, to the hospital system in the state, which is struggling right now. I was excited really about the price, you know? I mean, the current antibody medications, they're extremely expensive. So if you have COVID and you're in the hospital, it costs a hell of a lot to treat you. So just the idea that they have the pill, it can work for people that have COVID and it's cheaper. I mean, that's exciting and it really should save lives and hopefully people are willing to take it. That's an excellent point. And I think I just, I, as a science reporter, I'm just still so amazed at how quickly these things are are making progress. I think they said just like a couple of months. Yeah, I just wish that they were more global. I think that the, the global uh, vaccine rate right now is 46%. And until we get more people around the world vaccinated, I know it doesn't necessarily mean um, that we're going to get uh, more and stronger uh, variants, uh, but it does create some room for that, those variants to grow. And so, you know, if we've already vaccinated the people who are going to get vaccinated here, I think the U.S. has some room to try to ship um, uh, more of its uh, stock uh, out to other countries in the world that have uh, low, uh, lower vaccination rates. Beatrice, there's a move in Washington state and nationally to block misinformation about COVID. Who is blocking what? Um, yeah, so I think I'm going to mess it up. It's the Washington um, the Washington Medical Commission uh, is now able to discipline doctors for spreading of COVID-19 misinformation. And I think I think that that was really interesting to me because it was a state a state level thing. I, we were mm -hmm. seeing a lot of that stuff nationally with social media outlets. You saw YouTube did it um, with vaccine misinformation, but before that, we saw Facebook and Twitter take some stance on it as well. 
Um, and I think, you know, kind of like the antiviral, it's, it's, you know, if we, if we can't get more people to get the vaccine just by offering it for free alone, we got to pull other lever levers and see what we can do. And the, the information aspect of it definitely seems to be becoming more and more important as, as time goes on. Yeah, I think YouTube banning anti-vax information is great. Like we need to be normalizing private companies moderating their online content. There is a misunderstanding that like Facebook is a public forum and Twitter is a public forum and YouTube is a public forum. And so any ban of misinformation there is like a, a direct attack on free speech. It's just not. These are private companies uh, who are, as Biden said, you know, responsible for uh, allowing misinformation to, um, to proliferate. And YouTube's algorithm is particularly addictive and, and radicalizing. I know in my life, uh, I got radicalized on food vids five years ago, and now I know nothing of life except for how to you know, create five course meals with lime jello in under an hour. That's the, <laughs> and so I could see how people might go on a COVID anti-vaxxer train on that. Uh, you come back, Rich. <laughs> we're, we're, we've never stopped loving you. Come back. Thank you, thank you, Bill. But it's just going to be me and my lime jello this weekend, unfortunately. <laughs> Mike, any reaction to any of this? Yeah, yeah, this is huge. This is huge. The Washington Medical Commission stepping out and saying that, you know, doctors that spread misinformation, they can be fined um, even all the way up to losing their license. I think that is significant because the people who don't want the vaccine or don't believe in COVID, which is the most ridiculous thing you could ever think of. I mean, they're just looking for someone uh, to give their opinions for them. And sometimes you'll have that rogue doctor that will say that thing and then it'll just blow up on social media because the people that wanted that to be true are just going to perpetuate it. Doctors should be held to a higher standard. They should stick to facts. On Clapback Culture, I said plenty of times, I, I was not okay with Donald Trump being banned from social media because it felt weird. He's not a doctor. Like these are actual literal medical doctors. Like if anyone should have to stick to facts, it should be them. So this is big. And I think that this is it's just a nice move. Is it going to be clear who's being factual or not factual? Isn't it in real life come down to more like, hey, I'm just asking questions. I'm just telling you what I heard about my friend's cousin in Trinidad. I'm just like, do you think this is really going to be? a clear line and even even enforced by these bodies that say they can do it but will they i think i think when you look at these medical commissions i think they will i think that they should have the power to have that level of nuance um they talk about like are the doctors that are doing this irredeemable so it seems like they want to work with the doctors in the case of youtube i wouldn't trust it to be honest I mean, their whole business model is based on can they get clicks? So if you have someone doing what you just say, which is just asking questions and just putting it out, YouTube's probably not going to take that down. But I think the medical commissions will take that more seriously. Yeah. And especially when you have people who are trying to get their hands on uh, like the livestock medicine, I think it's ever mectin. I can't say it right. Um, mm. But I think then it becomes something where, you know, you have someone to step in. And to be honest, I don't know exactly what the prevalence is of, of medical providers um, having misinformation. I mean, anecdotally, I was literally at a friend's house having dinner the other night and they mentioned how they had a, an aunt who was a nurse who didn't believe in COVID. So it definitely exists. Um, but I think it's also like just a symbol 
it's more than a symbolic thing. Like I, I do think that they're going to probably take it seriously, but I think the symbolic nature of, of this is also important. Um, Cause it's one thing to have YouTube and Facebook and Twitter taking a stance on it, but having like a state agency or, you know, someone in the medical community take a stance is just adding, I think more value and importance that misinformation is something that we should tackle. And maybe we'll see other, um, other leaders do the same thing and try to crack down in other areas of, of the community. Yeah. And with the horse paste stuff, a lot of it is like people talking on Reddit, like about what had happened to them. So there's a lot of like online forums out there that people can go to, to sort of talk about their self experiments, uh, as a, you know, to justify the reason for not getting a, a vaccine. Um, and so I, I don't know if YouTube is going to have perfect enforcement or if this is going to drastically reduce, um, the numbers of people who continue to seek uh, ivermectin, uh, but uh, it, it is sending a, a just to underline that uh, that point that Beatrice made a, uh, a a strong cultural message. You know, that this mm-hmm. isn't you know this isn't acceptable behavior. <laughs> Rich Smith's tapeworm loves lime jello, and uh, he's with us from the stranger. And uh, we've got Mike Davis here from Converge Media, South Seattle Emerald, and Beatrice Costalima from KCTS and Crosscut. And we're going to continue figuring out what happened this week and what it means when we come right back. Where You can watch the show on YouTube and Facebook. You can stay tuned and listen. Don't go away. I'm Bill Radke. Gun violence is up 33% in King County the first half of this year. This week, shots were fired during a Little League football game at Judkins Park. And Mike, you told us there's going to be a gathering at the park tomorrow. What happened at this football game and what's the gathering about? Um, you cut out a little bit there, Bill. Oh, but sorry. what I... Can you... Oh, well, yeah, there were, there were shots fired last weekend. Um, during the youth football game. Fortunately, no one was hurt. They did have to cancel the rest of the afternoon's games. And in response to that, there has been a community call to action. They're calling for people to come out, be a physical presence. Um, Community is asking specifically for Black men to show up just to be there and support safety and just to show the kids that we care and that we'll huddle around them and we'll do our best as community to keep the kids safe. What can bringing the community together do to help that the Seattle Police Department can't do? Well, people in the community know each other, you know, Um, having a police presence is definitely helpful. But at the same time, I mean, the police, they don't always know who's who. And when we're talking about black men specifically, a lot of times police will look at all of us like a threat. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done between the police and the community to build and strengthen that relationship because it should be a partnership. And I got to give a major shout out to Omari Salisbury and Chief Diaz. I mean, they they're always in communication. They always talk and that open communication should strengthen the community. But as far as what can community do that police can't, we can come together and we can be a strong, positive presence so that if people are coming to the park to do something that has nothing to do with the youth football, what they're going to see is a strong community, a bunch of people standing strong there for positivity. And the hope is that that will deter any negative actions. 
Omari Salisbury has been on this show and uh, is with Converge Media, as is Mike Davis. And I'm going to open it up to any comments or questions from Beatrice or Rich. I just wanted to know, Mike, the, you know, the, the city of Seattle is debating whether and how to have fewer armed officers, more community helpers. Is it clear what the people who live around Judkins Park are saying they want? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's an interesting conversation whenever we talk about police and like where the actual voices are that are just saying do away with police well the cd panthers reached out to the police and there will be a police presence at the gang as well as that community presence yes we can come together as community to keep ourselves safe but if there is going to be gunfire we don't want it to be the wild wild west in front of our children we don't need community members and other community members shooting it out we would like to have the police. It's just the police have to do the work of building trust of the community. And quite frankly, they have not done that yet. It doesn't mean that they'll never do it, but it does mean that it is important because police and community have to get to a place where they can work in tandem. We need our community safe. Gun violence is up. And when you look statistically at where it's happening, we're talking about South Seattle. We're talking about South King County. When you look at the effects of gentrification and you look at where the black folks live, we're talking about South Seattle and we're talking about South King County. We need safety in our community. So, yes, we absolutely do need the police. Yeah, it's just, it's such a uh, just to underscore what, what Mike said, the obvious answer is that the community has something that the police don't have right now uh which is trust and the community can gather around and uh, you know interpersonal issues can get squashed without the risk of uh, uh bringing anybody into the criminal punishment system which could further destabilize uh communities so you know that sounds like the right way to go all right well let's talk uh, uh politics again as we uh, as we were earlier in the show Washington state sends 10 people to congress to represent us right now it's seven democrats and three republicans and of course we got our state legislature divvied up uh, rich we're about to change the maps so will you explain to us what's at stake here yeah everyone's uh, political voice is at stake here every 10 years we change around the maps because we've got you know in accordance with the um, uh, population change about a million people have come into washington uh in the last 10 years and uh, we got to make sure that uh, everyone uh, feels uh, heard and um, is adequately represented in both congress and the state legislature and so um, a commission a redistricting commission of people two democrats two republicans one uh, non-voting um, a member that they both uh, that both sides picked um, will are now drawn maps put them putting them out um, uh, asking desperately for feedback from uh, the community and um, then they'll go behind uh, closed doors and try to uh, figure out uh, what to do, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, what, what maps they ultimately agree on before November 15th. And if that doesn't work, then they'll send it on up to the Supreme Court. Quick question for you, Rich. I I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, but you mentioned about a million people have come in since last time. Are there is there information about where those people went? Like, is it just more people in King County, Pierce County, Snohomish County area, or is it? Yes. Well, yeah. Most yes. of it is 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 in is um, uh, most people are flooding into the urban areas. Right. Yeah. And I mean flood in a in a welcoming, <laughs> embracing way. Mm, the most embracing way of that we do when we, when things flood. Yeah. Yeah. Or stream like a, like a beautiful river. 
Yes, yes, if you will. So are these map drawers, Rich, are they working for the people or are they working for their parties? Uh, well, <laughs> if, um, it's a, it's a um, bipartisan commission. Uh, and so, uh, that so none means- of them are working for the people. Well, the the, the people who they represent, I guess, Uh they're they're working for. But yes, it's not a nonpartisan. California, for instance, has a nonpartisan system, a a redistricting system. And so every 10 years, it's basically ends up being a free for all for uh, uh, incumbents. They get to kind of square off uh, with uh, each other, redraw maps so that you end up getting a bunch of incumbents in in new districts and they have to fight. Um, Washington's... um, uh, partisan uh, redistricting uh, system ends up being a lot about incumbents. Both parties basically try to protect their com- incumbents at all costs and shore up their power, obviously, in different parts uh, of the state wherever they can. And so that's what um, that's basically what we're seeing now. They, they every both sides have released released their maps, and these are dreamland maps. These are the opening arguments maps. These are not the maps we're going to get, but they do tell us something about the values of each party and the Democrats are focused more on keeping communities of interest and keeping communities of color together. They try not to split up as many cities and counties, keep those people whole so that they can figure out who their state senator is, their state rep is, without having to take a ferry across the water or whatever, you know, to organize the people. And many of the Democrat choices reflect those values, which just so happen to help shore up Democratic Party uh, power Mm -hmm. in the state legislature. Um, uh, their argument is basically that the state is uh, 60% Democrat, um, looking at you know governor's races and, and presidential races. And if Republicans want to win, then they'll just have to run the kinds of candidates that can win in that political environment. You know, the Republicans, on the other hand, um, they've got one goal, which is to create more districts that they feel like they can win. Uh, and so it follows that their maps cut up more cities, cut up more counties. They draw strange lines around um, uh, cities uh, in order to create uh, districts, um, uh, swing districts, more competitive districts, as they'd say that they could potentially win. So, uh, and while they did also nominally draw some uh, majority uh, minority uh, districts, I think many of them, if not uh, all of them, none of them have um, a majority uh, voting age population, uh, minority uh, populations within them. So um, it's mostly people of color in a couple of districts, but the people of color of color who are there can't vote uh, in a majority way. So that's kind of the basic layout of the of the two maps or of the four maps from the two parties. Okay, uh, one more question about that, and then we're going to get to things that uh, reasons to smile because we're going to end the show. Um, is there you could you, to say that we want to create a district that's more competitive? That has kind of a positive uh, appeal to it. More competition. We believe in that in America. There's lots of re- rhetoric is is rhetoric, but is there is there a way that seems um, platonically more fair? I mean, you could put a grid over the city. Right. And just mark it up that way. You could you could you could snake lines around and make it more competitive. Is there something that seems in in some nonpartisan that's nonpartisan fair or does that really not really exist? I mean, you're ultimately talking about drawing lines of 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 political action that encourage competition in uh, elections. The Democrats have argued that electoral competition, which the state law requires uh, in, in that these maps encourage, doesn't necessarily mean partisan 
electoral competition. They say we've got a top two primary, you know, in the state. And, you know, there's plenty of competition, <laughs> electoral competition with a, a top two primary. Look no farther than the fifth district last year where Mark Mullet ran up against the progressive challenger Ingrid Anderson, only won by uh, 50 or so votes. So uh, it's really kind of, you know, theoretical ideas of what electoral competition means are, are kind of up in the air. They're in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but to your point, you know, can you just cut up districts and make a 50-50 districts? Yeah, you can. But what you're talking about is people's political voice. And if you cut up districts like that, then you run into situations that I was describing earlier where, you know, someone from um, Georgetown is having to figure out a way to communicate politically with somebody from Bainbridge Island, different county, you know, mm -hmm. a body of water away to decide what their interests are. And there's just a huge gulf <laughs> between, you know, common interests in a lot of these geographical areas. And you don't want to dilute people's um, political power um, mm -hmm. by doing something like cutting, cutting, cutting people out uh, uh, and cutting communities out so that they can't organize. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to cut the show out in a couple of minutes. So is there anything uh, that you can leave us with? The news can be bleak. Anybody have a Beatrice? Was there something that was that made you smile or might make our listeners smile this week? Yeah, I actually got some good news uh, yesterday from one of my co-producers uh, to give Sarah Hoffman a shout out uh, that the J-Pod is back. They were missing for a couple of days. And so our whales were, I think, seen off of the San Juans. So everyone oh. can be happy that the whales have returned. <laughs> Welcome back, Orcas. Mike, how about you? Were you smiling at anything? I'm smiling because the Mariners have a chance. You believe? And even though I'm not on board, <laughs> when they have a chance, the city is just a little more pleasant. You can tell when you're walking around. Other people are believing, and I'm happy for y'all because your dreams are going to get crushed. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you had a dream. Rich, how about you? We got three new stations opening up. I'm so happy, you know. I'm just smiling that we get more train stops. Less traffic. That's less right, less traffic. traffic. That's the idea. <laughs> All right, I might see you on that train tomorrow. Um, I guess uh, I guess my little thing is that uh, we get another week to vote on a name for the new uh, hybrid electric state ferry. Uh, the state asked the public for suggestions, and they got hundreds of ideas, and none of them met the guidelines because they're these stringent guidelines. You're supposed to say why it's your name is significant regionally, and the state symbols it uses, and how it's ethical, and and uh, <laughs> none of them met that. I think that's the state's job, though. I think uh, I feel like we're just supposed to say Bodie McBoatface and not know what we're talking about. So... Um, that's why we have representative democracy. So we'll see whether the state names it or whether a human being names it. You can float on one of those. You can float on Sir Floats a lot over to Bainbridge to meet your fellow constituents. Uh, and that's all the time we have. Uh, Mike Davis and Rich Smith and Beatrice Costalima. Uh, I love it when you come by and figure out the news with us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, Bill. Associate editor of The Stranger, Rich Smith. South Seattle Emerald reporter and co-host of Clapback Culture on Converge Media, Mike Davis. Crosscut and KCTS9 producer, Beatrice Costalima. Thank you. And thank you to Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu for live streaming and social media work this week. Thank you to Alec Cowan and Sarah Leibovitz for producing the show. And thank you for listening and watching if you were checking us out on YouTube and Facebook. I'm Bill Radke, and we're going to do this again in another week. See you for the next Week in Review.
This is Bill Radke. If you didn't happen to tune in at the exact right time and you missed something, you didn't really miss it because you could always hear our Week in Review podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all your usual places. And let's not limit this to your ears. We live stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. So just go there and search KOW Public Radio and you can watch us live on Fridays or watch old episodes of me and my guests being in little boxes on your screen. See you then.